This evening, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our Scripture reading, which can be found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, beginning our Scripture reading in verse 39 all the way through verse 46. And then afterwards, we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 49. And we're going to read both Luke 22 and Lord's Day 49 under the heading of Not My Will, But Yours. Not my will, but yours, from Luke chapter 22. Let's begin our reading. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39, which says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down, and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here ends a reading of God's Word this evening. And then we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism, the forms and prayers in the pew in front of you, to Lord's Day 49. Lord's Day 49, which can be found on page 255, the forms and prayers. Just one question this evening, question 124. Question 124, what does the third petition mean to which we answer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, means help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any backtalk to obey your will, for it alone is good. Help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Would you have a quick word of prayer with me this evening? An old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Well, beloved congregation, in our society, to petition someone, possibly a government or a board of directors, is an appeal to the authorities to change something. Maybe you've been walking through the mall this last Christmas season and someone approached you and said, would you please consider signing our petition? Or maybe you yourself have petitioned a school board or your boss about a certain cause. You want to change something. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that the Lord's Prayer is actually a petitionary prayer. Look at Lord's Day 47. What does the first petition mean? Hallowed be thy name. Lord's Day 48. What is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. And the third petition, our consideration this evening, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In prayer, we are petitioning God. And we all know people, probably, 
who in prayer, maybe in private prayer or in prayer together as a family or prayer together as friends or in a prayer group, we all know people who in their prayers seemingly try to change the mind of God. And in prayer we say, Father, we don't like our situation. We don't like our lot in life. And so we're asking You to change it. We're asking You to alter the course of history. To alter the course of my life. And prayer. But do we not confess that God is unchanging? That He knows the end from the beginning? That He is the sovereign God who does all things well? How do we make sense of the fact that the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is telling us and commanding us to petition God? Well, in our Scripture reading this evening, we see Jesus put this petitionary prayer into practice. That the purpose of prayer is not to make God do my will, but the purpose of prayer is to bring my will into line with God's. Not my will, praise the Lord Jesus, but your will be done. See, beloved, we could actually say that the third part of the Lord's Prayer is a petition to God not to change Him, but a petition for Him to change me. As C.S. Lewis said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the needs flow out of me all the time whether I'm awake or I'm asleep. It doesn't change God. It changes me. No, we are not to pray that God would do our will. We do not pray as if we are trying to change His mind. But in Christian prayer, we are to ask that the world and that everything and everyone would be conformed, would be transformed to the holy will of God. Not, your, not my will, O oh God, but Yours. See, the goal of all prayer is that His will would be done. David exclaimed in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do Your will, O God. He again prayed in Psalm 43, Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. John unfolds this in his epistle and says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. See, the third petition is not a petition to change God's mind. Not a petition to change His plan for the world. But the third petition teaches us that submission to God's will is foundational for our Christian prayers. The third petition teaches us that submission to God's will is foundational for our Christian prayers. Notice the three points. You can find them in your bulletin. Not my will, point one. Accepting God's will, point two. And finding God's will, point three. Let's consider first, not my will. 
Our Scripture meditation this evening takes place during what's commonly called the Passion Week. The Lord Jesus has, just a few days earlier, entered into the city of Jerusalem to the hosannas and the praises to the people of Jerusalem. But now it is either Thursday evening or early Friday morning, and He is only merely hours away from the cross. And this passage is full of astounding truths, but here is the first. Jesus needed to pray. He came out, it says, and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives. As was His custom. This is where Jesus often came with His disciples, but it was not His customary place of teaching, although He did teach on the Mount of Olives. His customary place to teach was in the temple. It was His custom, yes, to come here, not to fellowship or just to kick it back and take it easy like we often do in parks and places of greenery here in the state of Michigan. But this was the customary place that Jesus would often go to pray. We think that this evening that Luke is recording that Jesus had a special place in the garden that He would often go to to pray. A special place that He would go and enjoy prayer with the Father. A place of peace. A place of communion with God. But this evening hour is not marked by peace. This hour of prayer is not marked by the joy of fellowship with God. We see that this hour of prayer was marked by a supernatural conflict with Satan and the wrestling of Jesus' will in obedience to the Father. Notice He bids His disciples twice here Pray that you might not enter into temptation. I think that this is the focus of Luke here. He mentions it two times in verse 40 and verse 46. Temptation means a time of great danger, oppressing, attesting. There's a sense of urgency in Jesus' voice as he repeats it twice. This is the hour of temptation. And so Christ prays. As Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, He knows God's plan. He knows that it is God's plan and will that He would be taken into the hands of sinful men. He knows that it is God's plan and will that He would be crucified for us. He knows that it is God's plan and will that He would endure God's wrath for us. And what a profound truth this evening. And he knows he cannot endure this trial without prayer. Beloved, the first thing you must see this evening is how Jesus stood in the need of prayer. And if Christ does not face temptation, if Christ does not face the pressing, the danger of temptation without prayer, how much more so do disciples need to pray? How much more so do all Christians need to be in prayer? And so this passage shows us maybe in the realest sense we could ever see the humanity of Jesus. Doesn't it show us the humanity of Jesus? We see Him tempted in Gethsemane. 
In fact, so raw is the heart of Jesus that some of your Bibles, not the Pew Bibles I should add, some of your Bibles may even have a footnote after verses 43 and 44, or maybe put them in brackets, because some of the earlier manuscripts omit these verses. And I think it's plausible, I agree with Dale Ralph Davis here, it's plausible that these may have been omitted as those earlier scribes, because boys and girls, when someone had a copy of the Bible in the ancient world, someone had to write it by hand. It is plausible that some of those early scribes looking at the humanity of Jesus may have omitted it because it is so raw. Jesus is so unbearably human in this passage. And Christ's temptation is different than ours. What Christ was tempted to in the Garden of Gethsemane is He was tempted to abandon the will of the Father. His whole life was for the purpose of the cross. We talked about it in Advent. The cross looms over the nativity scene. And now as the hour is approaching and He is considering that cross, considering the whips and the nails and the crown of thorns, He is tempted to forego the cross. Oh, the humanity of Jesus here. Though He was incapable of sinning due to the union of His divine nature and His human nature, He was still capable of being tempted. He could still be pressed. He could still feel danger. And here He is tempted. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Here is the temptation, maybe even the greatest temptation of Christ. Now I want to show you something this evening, that there is something radically different between your and my temptation and the temptation of Christ recorded in Luke chapter 22. You see, when Satan tempts you and me, he appeals to our flesh. He whispers in your ear, come and enjoy a little bit of sin. A little bit of vanity. You deserve it. A little bit of drunkenness. Take a load off. A little bit of lust. Everyone's doing it. He tempts you and me to hold on to sin. He tempts us to resist righteousness and holiness and purity. But notice in Luke 22 how Jesus' temptation is actually the reverse. While we struggle to abandon sin and embrace holiness, Jesus struggled to set aside holiness and embrace sin-bearing. This is the temptation of Jesus. While Satan tempts believers to cling to their sin, he tempts Jesus to cling to His holiness. 
And we will never understand the anguish of this temptation. We are quickly a people who can give ourselves to sin. But Jesus' whole life was marked by union with God. And the thought of being made sin and forsaken by God fills Him with a horror. Beloved, a, fa- a, a dread we cannot fathom. And Jesus, as He petitions God's will, notice what He does here. He does not petition God to change His will. He petitions God that His own will would be brought into submission to God's. And so Christ prays. He goes, look at verse 41. About two or three yards away, a stone's throw, says Luke. And it says He knelt down Mark in his Gospel, chapter 14, verse 35, says that under the weight of the reality of what he was to do, he eventually fell down. Matthew says, Matthew 26, verse 29, he fell on his face in prayer. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, verse 7, tells us that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with crying and tears, and he prays. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's so important that you see this evening what Jesus is praying for here. He is not saying, I don't want to be obedient. He is not saying, I refuse to submit. Instead, He is saying, Father, if there is any other way, I am terrified. But if this is what You want, not what I will, but Your will be done. Oh, what faith our Lord had to be able to say, Your will be done. In the ESV, it says, nevertheless, Your will. But that might even be a little weak. The Greek, you could translate it as only Your will be done. In prayer, our Lord brings His desires before God. He brings to all Him all of His cares, all of His burdens, as Peter tells us to do as believers. But when it comes down to it, He still affirms that the Father's will is sovereign. And beloved, so it is with us. You can bring to God your wants. You can bring to God your desires. You can bring to Him the burdens of your heart. But when there is a conflict between God's will and my will, His will must reign. Our wills must give way. We recognize in prayer that He is sovereign. I am not. I do want to show you one thing about the sovereignty before we move on to the second point. But twice in this passage, Jesus tells His disciples to pray. Even though God is sovereign, even though God knows and does all things, twice they are called to pray. This is a reminder from the Lord Jesus of that ever-present balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. 
Yes, He is sovereign. But God bids you to pray because the very means God uses to keep men from temptation is prayer. And so Jesus says, not my will, but yours. I want you to see here that Christ also doesn't begrudgingly He doesn't backtalk God as the catechism says, but He accepts the will of God. See, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is not to be a begrudging submission. As the catechism says, help us and all people to renounce our wills without any backtalk and to obey Your will for it alone is good. That is, in prayer, we are also to learn to be obedient. That we would accept. And that we would submit to God's good will. Now the catechism is making a profound point by saying that God's will is good, isn't it? It's saying that His will is good. And even when it seems bad, it is good. We talked about it this morning in our catechism class, didn't we, uh, young men and young women? That God does all things well to all people. And we ought to submit to His will. But what about when things are very hard? Boys and girls, what about when God tells you, when it's His will, that you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because they are asking you to do things that you shouldn't be doing? What about maybe moms and dads when it is the will of God that you quit your job because they are asking you to work on Sunday and betray your convictions to Him? What about when you are called to stand up for the truth even if it means sacrificing friends? What about as we pray so often in the evenings when God asks us to even endure persecution for the sake of Christ? What Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane shows us that God's will is always good. His will alone is good. Even when His will for you is hard. In Matthew 6, where Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and teaches us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And 20 chapters later in Matthew 26, in His recording of this passage, of this prayer, it is the exact same language in the Greek. Your will be done in Matthew 6. Your will be done in Matthew 26. He puts His own teaching into practice even though his soul is sorrowful unto death, he says, your will be done. I want to look with you for a moment, thought by thought, through Jesus' prayer this evening. Look with me, if you will, your Bible, verse 42. He begins with the word, Father. The first person of the Trinity The one to whom all true prayer must be addressed. Boys and girls, as Jesus petitions God the Father, He doesn't simply mean the God of the Old Testament. But He is referring to the first person of the Trinity, the Creator and Architect of all things. 
The Bible tells us that this God the Father, along with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, have existed for all of eternity. They have enjoyed constant fellowship, enjoyed constant love and union together. And every time Jesus looked God the Father in the eyes, what He saw was love. What He saw was a Father who is well pleased with His Son. But in this hour of prayer, as Jesus kneels in Gethsemane, He looks into the eyes of God and listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, before His eyes was the dreadful tribunal of God. And the judge Himself was armed with inconceivable vengeance because of our sins, the load of which was laid upon Him and pressed down upon Him with its enormous weight. What God was asking Him to do on the cross was to bear the weight of sin, to endure eternal hell for our sakes, that the relationship with the Father and the relationship Jesus had with the Holy Spirit would be shattered in one instant. Now, I've preached this passage a few times. And you know what astounds me the most about it? Is that Jesus is afraid. Think of his whole gospel life. Did you ever see Jesus once in fear? When his best friend, John the Baptist, was captured and then martyred for loving him and preaching Jesus to Herod, he did not fear. When he was confronted by Satan in Luke chapter 4, when he was hated by the Jews, when He cast out demons, when He raised the dead, never once did it say He was filled with fear until now. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. And Luke tells us that He is weeping. Boys and girls, Jesus is crying here. Asking the Father to remove this cup. What is so scary that makes a lion tremble? What is so fearful that can make a king weep? What is so terrifying that makes a Lord fall on His face? Jesus says it is the cup. Well, what is that cup? If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. Where we see that the cup is actually an Old Testament analogy of God's wrath. It is a figure of judgment. We see in Psalm 75, verse 8. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, foaming with wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, in the Old Testament, the cup was a symbol of God's wrath. And the person to whom the cup was given, the Bible tells us, loses all remnants of their humanity 
Isaiah 51 says, those who drink that cup stagger and fall unconscious in the, in the streets. Hebrews 2 verse 16 tells us that those who drink the cup of the Lord are the exposed and the disgraced. Jeremiah 51 verse 7 says, those who drink the cup of the Lord go mad. Isaiah 51 verse 23, they are scorned by the world. What is in the cup? It's the wrath of Almighty God. It is the punishment for sins. It is the death of every man. It is the hell that you and I deserve. The cross is in the cup. And yet, He does not doubt the Father's plan. In the dirt of Gethsemane, He whispers, Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. He accepts the will of God. Sproul says this is the highest expression of faith when we submit to the sovereignty of God. Yes, by faith we are, com- we are to come to God and cast our burdens upon Him, but we must trust Him to give the answer that is best. In prayer, we must trust that God the Father will give us the answer that is best. Joel Beakey shared a story that he had an elder who in his pastorate here in Grand Rapids consistently struggled with cancer. And for years and years, he was always going in and out of the chemotherapy and the treatments. And finally, it felt after a few years that it was in remission. And this brother uh, was cancer-free. And he says, one day I get a phone call from his wife. It's back. And he says, my heart broke for him. And so he calls up his brother and he's so concerned and he says, brother, how are you doing? You know what the man's answer was? He says, my father knows best. I was able to bring my concerns to him. I brought my petitions. My broken heart. But I know that he knows best. The father does know best. And he does answer Jesus' prayer. Luke tells us that he sent to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. A messenger from God. And he came to get from heaven to give Jesus God's answer. And the answer of the Father is, you must drink this cup. The angel strengthens him to go to the cross. By word of application, notice in the story that it is through prayer that God hears. It is through prayer that God answers. And He sends His help to Jesus through a ministering angel. In the Bible, the angels provide God's help and guidance and encouragement to His people. And though God's answer to His Son was, no, I will not remove this cup, he still reaches down through, the son, through an angel to help his son walk in his ways. Though we have not seen angels, the writer of Hebrews says that God sends ministering spirits to those who prayerfully submit to his will. Do you know that you have angels 
when you pray according to God's will, who seek to help you and assist you. It is true for us as well. Now we would expect that a ministering angel would alleviate the agony of Jesus' soul. But look at what the passage says. After the angel comes to him, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I am no doctor, but medically this is called, and let me give my best attempt at this, hematidriosis. Double check with a nurse here if I said that right. Hematidriosis. And this is a medical condition which we have seen caused by such mental and emotional strain that your capillaries, capillaries dilate and burst so that your sweat becomes mingled with your blood. Now why does he increase in agony after the angel comes? Well, Jonathan Edwards says the increase of agony was due to the realization that God's will was cross that there was no other way he must take the cup I've said this before but I think other than the resurrection to come in just a few chapters in Luke I think these next few words are some of the most glorious words in the whole of Luke's gospel and he rose from prayer Beloved, your king stood in Gethsemane in triumph. He rises to his feet covered from top to bottom in blood. He stood there dirty from his face pressed into the ground with cheeks stained with tears. And he stands having agreed to do the will of God. He stands in prayer, having petitioned God, bring my will. Bring my desires to Yours. And He stands, having taken the cup for you and for me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus teaches us by His life that the prayer of faith trusts God no matter what the answer is. The prayer of faith trusts God no matter what the answer is. I love the way the catechism puts it. Mom and dads, we can't help but smile where it talks about back-talking. If you have teenagers, you're well acquainted with this word. See, back-talking is when we speak to an authority and tell them that we think we know what is best. But the prayer of faith says, I don't. God does. And so, beloved, your, God's answer to you this evening for your prayer very may well be you need to deal with the consequences. Or maybe He has told you that He will not grant your desires even if they are good ones. Maybe He is saying to you that He will not remove a trial that is before you in your path. But prayer is a reminder that God the Father knows best. His will alone is good. And I must submit and trust Him. 
Now, before we conclude this evening, you might be thinking, well, pastor, that is all well and good. I would like to follow God's will, but how do I come to know His will? How do we answer questions such as, do I marry him or her? Should I change jobs? Should we have more children? What church do I go to? How do we find God's will? Well, theologically, we understand God's will in two ways. That which is hidden from us, we call that His will of decree. That's His will in heaven. And then we have what we call God's will, His revealed will. What is God's revealed will? It is nothing more and it is nothing less than the revealed Word of God. As Reformed people, we believe that everything we need for faith, that everything we need for life and practice is revealed in the Bible. We read this morning from Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God. Or Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. See, the will of God is shorthand for the study of the Word of God. That we would obey His commandments and walk in His ways. How do we know what God wants of us? Well, J.I. Packer puts it this way, by paying attention to His Word. That we do not allow circumstances, people's advice, this world to shape our minds. But as we learned this morning, we are transformed by the very Word of God itself. So what is God's will for you? Take up and read. Take up and read. And bow your heads in prayer. And ask that God would reveal how you can carry out your office and calling as willingly and as faithful as the angels in heaven. And know this, that God promises that if you open your heart to Him, and you seek His will in your word, His word, excuse me, and in prayer, He promises that He will get through to you with the guidance that you need. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we are able to come into your presence this evening and that you have revealed the very will of God for us in in, uh, your word, and that is the will to pray. That we are to be a people who relinquish their will who embrace the will of God, even when there are great burdens and trials before us, and who are able to say that our Father knows best. And so, Father, we pray that You would help us to find Your will in every circumstance and in every place. May we lift up our eyes to Your Word and bow our heads in prayer and say, Father, show us and we will obey. For we know that, Lord, all things from Him and through Him And to Him are all things. And to Him be the glory forever. And may we live with that doxology on our lips, even in the burdens of life. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.